iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello and welcome to the game World Cup Daily from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer and thank you for joining us. We are here every match day of the World Cup, podcasting after 10 o'clock UK time every night. Thank you so much for those of you who have been tuning in. I understand we've been listened to in 128 countries. We are so cosmopolitan. A special shout out to our one listener in Ecuador. We can't promise we'll get around to discussing Los Amarillos with the team not being at the World Cup, but you never know. We'll give it a try. Joining me this evening, Times football writer James Gearbrandt in the studio and in Kazan, Alison Rudd. Martin Ziegler joins us from Moscow, where Senegal have become the first African nation to taste victory at this tournament. Japan also became the first Asian nation to beat a South American side at a World Cup. Plus, Henry Winter joins us the morning after the night before from the England camp with further reaction to that last-minute win over Tunisia. Very shortly, we'll be talking about the hosts Russia, who are as good as through to the last 16 for the first time ever after victory over Egypt. But... We start with the big news breaking this evening as we record, which is that Deli Ali suffered a thigh strain in that victory for England, potentially putting his World Cup at risk. Alison, questions naturally uh, are going to be asked of Gareth Southgate and whether he should have kept Ali on the pitch for so long. I mean, it's certainly clear he was injured after, what, around half an hour in that game? I mean, with hindsight, it seems a ludicrous thing the manager to have done. But uh, one assumes Southgate has quite a lot on his plate and it's up to the myriad people around him to have spotted that maybe it was worth just being cautious and, and hauling him off. I, honestly, I don't. it's not as if it was a, a, a game which needed Ali there. I, I mean, the fact that uh, Loftus-Cheek came on and did such a great job anyway proves that England do have some depth in that squad. So there's no need whatsoever to take risks. Mm. So uh, I, I, I don't like to criticise the lovely Gareth Southgate, but in this instance, it would seem he's made an error. I mean, I suppose Ali could have said, I'm fine, let me carry on, because he wanted to be so involved in the game. But that's that's irrelevant. I mean, and, and, and that's probably one of the first rules of management, actually, is that you know that players will lie. The number of players who have admitted to me, personally, you just don't say I'm injured. You don't want to believe it yourself as a player. You can convince yourself it's nothing at all. Adrenaline masks real pain anyway, and you get such stick off your teammates and everyone involved if you ask to go off at any point, unless you've broken something and it's hanging off. That's not an excuse either. You don't listen to players saying it's fine. You, you, you pay enough people who are medics and are good at assessing the way a player runs, and the, just everything about them can tell you that something's getting slightly worse, not improving. Uh, James, England will be expected to beat Panama with or without Ali. But if he is going to be out for a couple of weeks, how do you fill the void 
tactically if you were the England manager? Well, I would have been probably tempted to maybe change things around, not in terms of the system, but maybe introduce a few new faces against Panama anyway. I, I know that possibly sounds complacent, but I just I feel that Panama are a very beatable opposition and, and just that there's a real benefit to getting other squad members playing time who maybe need it because I feel that the midfield that started against Tunisia, the central midfield of obviously Henderson as the as the pivot, the deeper midfielder, and Ali and Lingard as the, the, the more advanced central midfielders, the free eights, is a pretty attacking central midfield. And I'm not sure whether that is necessarily a balanced enough midfield to be suitable for facing the real heavyweights of the World Cup. So in, in terms of balance, it, it wouldn't particularly concern me at all to... I mean, I think Ali is a loss, don't get me wrong, I think what he brings is a a loss, but in terms of the balance of the team, I wouldn't necessarily be that concerned by replacing him with, say, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who I think offers slightly more balance in the midfield against the better teams, and it's a bonus that I think Loftus-Cheek has looked incredibly good in, in all his England appearances. I think, personally, I think he's been absolutely fantastic every time he's played, but don't get me wrong, I think I think Dele Alli is depending on the seriousness of his injury, I think that would be a loss. But it's a squad game. We always say that about tournaments, don't we? We certainly do. Uh, earlier, we spoke to the former Liverpool physio, Mark Leather, for his medical insight. A thigh strain you know, can cover a, a, a whole spectrum of severity from not so severe, from quite mild, uh, quick recovery injuries to more serious problems that can drag on for a few weeks and into a month. So um, it will be difficult to predict exactly what he's done, but the thigh strain really is um, looking at the anterior aspect of the thigh, the front of the thigh, which involves uh, the main muscle involved in kicking the ball, and the main muscle probably when you're running at anything above half pace, your your thigh muscle at the front and your hamstrings at the back do take quite a lot of uh, stress. So for a footballer, that is a pretty severe injury in terms of this competition really what we're gathering uh, from our information is that it'll certainly rule him out of the panama game do you think it could be worse than that though well for example the if it was a grade one strain that's damaged uh muscle tissue then you know the the recovery could be somewhere between seven ten days maybe a little bit longer if it's the outer layer of the muscle which actually isn't the muscle tissue itself more what we call fascia it's just an outer layer of protective layer then they recover very quickly and the prognosis and recovery time will be pretty favorable within that seven to ten day period if it was a if it was more the muscle tissue that's been damaged then you could be looking at that period if it was just a little bit of muscle damage if it's a little bit more than that then it would be you know two to three weeks potentially but i think in in my view, they probably would write the Panama game off and hoping that they win that game. I think they probably would potentially write off the third match against the Belgians uh, at that period of time, knowing that they probably qualified with two wins out of maybe three. Um, and hopefully they'd be ready for the, for the knockout rounds uh, soon after that. It certainly looked as though England were preparing to substitute Ali in the first half, but he then carried on. Do you think that could have made yeah. it worse? Well, potentially it could do, but I think the player would know. They're pretty clever players in terms of knowing the bodies and knowing the injuries 
and the injuries that you need to be concerned about, certainly muscle injuries to the to the front of your thigh and the hamstrings and the groin injuries, they're pretty they're pretty aware that by playing on you would aggravate that injury and, and, and potentially keep yourself out for a longer period of time. So I think he probably thought it was just a little bit tight, which it probably was. Uh, and if the medical staff had, uh, you know, suspected that there's anything more than that, I think they would have. I think they would have substituted him right away. And certainly at half time, when you've had a longer period of time to look at the injury and assess it properly, I think that had there been any real concerns, then they would have, they'd have pulled him off then. Um, if it tightened up further or he stretched it a little bit more or aggravated a bit more in the second half, then that's probably. Uh, what has led to maybe some of the uh, the muscle tissue being damaged and hence the reason that it's been reported as a thigh strain. Well, despite the disappointing news about Ali, spirits are still high in the England camp, so much so they've been swimming with unicorns. Intrigued? By the Times, Wednesday morning, and check out the game to see what I'm talking about. It was a goal glut from Russia once again with three goals in the first 15 minutes of the second half as they beat Egypt in St. Petersburg and they've made the best start by a host nation in any World Cup. Alison, looking at their record after two games, it's 1-2, scored eight, conceded only one. Uh, They're playing, it seems, with no pressure as being the hosts. They are simply loving it, aren't they? Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Probably the most startling thing about tonight's match was just looking at the faces of those Russian players. The, they look like a group of kids who just eaten too many sweets, gone out, told to run it off before they come to, home to bed, and they just had an absolute laugh. That uh, they, they are the most joyous team at this World Cup. Uh, and you could have, no one would have taken your money if you'd said that was going to happen beforehand. I want to know what has happened. Even the Russian people were... I mean, I went to a fan park in Kazan, on my first full day here um, to watch the opening match. And <laughs> the Russian fans were all a bit dour and they didn't seem terribly interested in the game. And they said, oh, it's not that we don't wish them well. We just know they're not very good and we're a bit embarrassed that they're not very good. And and they have they have shown enormous passion and desire and, as you say, Natalie, unburdened by expectation. And, you know, I think anyone in sport wants to know who their uh, sports psychologist is because they've done a loving good job. <laughs> they certainly have. Uh, and one of the stars so far is Denis Cheryshev. Three goals in two games. He was at Real Madrid uh, as a youngster, James, now at Villarreal. Do you think we are seeing the talent that he has to offer? Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the one of the things that I like about Russia is they just strike me as a very well-balanced team. They're not you know, they don't have many big names or arguably any, but there's no one I feel in that team who's being accommodated out of position like you sometimes see with, with, with the bigger sides. You've got, you know, you've got, and it sounds simple, but you've got two centre-backs at centre-back, two full-backs. And what I really like about Russia is in that, that double pivot in the four-two-three-one, you've got two actually really quite defensive midfielders who kind of shore up the central defence, which is probably a bit of a weakness. But it also it really allows people, players like Cheryshev and Golovin, to attack freely without sort of having any sort of real defensive responsibility. I just think it's a it's a nicely balanced team where um, with quite a clear delineation of roles. I think, and uh, as you say, Cheryshev has been has been really impressive. 
Alison, I know you're a, a fan of Mo Salah, but it's certainly been a sad ending for him. Hopes that he might recover fully from that injury in the Champions League final uh, and hopes that he would light up this World Cup uh, kind of diminished, haven't they? And, and barring a Saudi Arabia victory on Wednesday, he and Egypt are going home. Yeah, no, well, it is sad. And it's 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 not just Salah, is it? A, you can just, just top them up, players for whom... They are, they're just the player for their team. Everything rests on them. They are iconic. You know, it's, it's just important to say that when a player's injured, it's not their fault. And there's been this sense of, oh, well, couldn't you have got, couldn't you have got fitted quick enough? And uh, was he really a bit soft in the final? And he had a serious injury. He's done his utmost to get back uh, in time to try and save his country against Russia. And it, I suppose you can look at it two ways, actually. You could say, that was painful to watch if you're a fan of Mo Salah because he wasn't at his best. He wasn't as sparkling as he could be. His movement was slightly hampered. On the other hand, for somebody who wasn't fully fit to have won a penalty, to have scored a penalty, to have kept going throughout the match, to have been as lively as he was, although nowhere near as lively as we know he can be, that has to be a plus in his long list of achievements. It's actually really hard, I think, to coach those teams that have one real megastar and not much else because I think we all sort of we're we're all guilty of it aren't we sort of looking at, at it and think oh Egypt they could do quite well Mo Salah equals <laughs> goals and of course it it doesn't work like that you know regardless you know even if he was fully fit you know so much of of what he does at Liverpool and yeah of course he's brilliant but so much of it kind of you know rests on how well Sadio Mane and Roberto Firmino, the runs they make, the dragging defenders out of position, the creating broken field for for Mo Salah to run into. And it's a totally different proposition when you put him in sort of quite an otherwise quite workman, by international standards, an otherwise quite workman-like team. And defenders know that, you know, that they can really concentrate on on Mo Salah, you know, that you're not, you know, you're not going to really, really going to be hurt by... Amar Wada or or, or Mosen up front, um, and it, but it's so tricky. And we all sort of have high expectations, don't I think a lot of people thought Egypt would would overcome Russia quite easily, but it just it hasn't worked out like that. No, certainly not. Uh, Alison, you're watching Iran Spain in Kazan on Wednesday, and ahead of that, you've written a fascinating piece uh, on Iran and specifically on Iranian women and, and how this World Cup gives them the chance to do something we probably take for granted. Yeah, there's going to be well, it's going to be a lot of Iranian fans. There's going to be about 15,000 for the game against Spain. And a third of those are going to be women. And the reason a third of those are going to be women is they, this is their chance to watch live football alongside the the men in their life, whether it be their, their husbands, sons, brothers or whatever. And um, I bumped into a couple today in, in the um, pedestrianised area of the city centre and there was this couple and um, they're married. They've left behind their two-year-old daughter in Tehran because they got tickets just for this one match. And I said to her, her English wasn't great, but I said to her, you know, is this is your very first match ever in your life? And she was going, yes, yes, I can't believe it. I'm going to see my first live football game. And it's really hard to put yourself in those shoes. And there's no bitterness there. All she felt was absolute delight that she was being given the chance. And I think, really, if my piece is about anything, it's trying to understand why those fans are going to be joyous and so behind the team and happy, 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 and not 
conflicted because even though a third of them will know that when they go home, they won't be allowed to do this again, they see it. The reason is they're not conflicted is they see the fact that the cameras will be pointing at them mingling in the stadium, men and women together. The fact that they're doing it and the world can see them doing it, that is their form of confrontation, if you like. It's a demonstration by showing love and passion and togetherness because they know that will annoy the government more than any filing down with protest banners. I think some people just think, oh, that for the, Iranian, you know, the Iranian government don't like women liking football. It's not that. It's just that sense of, of having a party they don't like. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The Game, World Cup Daily from The Times with Natalie Sawyer. You can hear live commentary of all of Wednesday's games on Talk Sport, including Portugal taking on Morocco at 1 o'clock, Uruguay versus Saudi Arabia at 4, and the clash between Iran and Spain live from 7 o'clock on Talk Sport. England's last gasp victory over Tunisia certainly put a smile on the faces of England fans back home. The chief football writer at the Times, Henry Winter, has been with the team in Russia throughout the World Cup so far. And I caught up with him earlier for further reaction on the three points for the three Lions. The headlines were written by Harry Kane Henry, who who had spoken pre-match about emulating Cristiano Ronaldo's goal-scoring feats. And he certainly delivered on that, didn't he? Well, he did, and it'd be interesting to see the next wave of uh, headlines reflect the uh, viewing figures because uh, Harry Kane in England uh, peaked at, I think it was 18.1 million, which was uh, 5 million more than uh, than Harry for his wedding. So it just shows that England matter. You you only have to go on social media or get calls and texts from friends to realise the parties that are going on around the place celebrating England. And not simply the victory, and it was a bit nervy, but they got there in the end. But I think the fact, particularly in the first half, they played with a bit of panache, fearlessness, which is the key with England. So, absolutely, Kane deserves all the headlines. Personally, I thought Kieran Trippier was man of the match. I thought he was fabulous up and down the right. And Jordan Henderson was excellent in midfield too. You spoke in our World Cup preview podcast about the significance of the captain's armband. Do you think that added to Kane's performance? I think so. I, I think maybe there's something psychological. Well, as always with England, there's something psychological about giving Kane the uh, the armband. I think that you know when Tunisia lined up in the tunnel, you could see them. They were looking at Harry Kane, who was standing there with Pickford behind him, and then I think there was Henderson behind them, uh, ready to lead the, uh, the the team out. 
And I think that might have just caused the odd butterfly in the summers. We saw it the night before when uh, Harry Kane stopped and talked to uh, some of the print reporters in the uh, uh, in the sort of the bowels of the Volgograd Arena, and the Tunisian players were just coming back in from training, and they all looked at Kane. They all filed past us, and they all stared at Kane because he's a very imposing figure now. Now that he's you know supremely worked out, and uh, he looked at them nodded and then just looked away and again psychological there's something with Kane he's grown with stature every challenge that's thrown at him he's accepted and and built on he becomes the first England player to score two goals in a World Cup game since Gary Lineker in 1990 so could we see Kane enjoying the sort of tournament that might lead to the golden boot for him that would be absolutely wonderful. And the good thing about Kane is that when these questions are put to him, he doesn't sort of shy away. You know, he, he will say, well, absolutely, that's what I'm here to do. I like that self-belief. And, you know, Harry Kane has needed that self-belief to, uh, to difficult stages at the start of his career, going out on loan, being questions. I mean, I went back for a piece in the, um, in, in the Times, just going back through some of the early threads on the Hotspur fans, uh, fans' forums. Um, five, six years ago, what they thought of Harry Kane. And I would say it was split 50-50. Some of them were debating whether he was Premier League or Championship quality. And you know, fair play to Kane. You know, he's, he's proved a lot of people wrong. He's worked on it. He's got this, this hunger. What all the best sportsmen and women have, they've got this relentless, ferocious hunger for self-improvement. And Harry Kane's got that. He's not flashy. You don't see him going to sort of gala openings or premieres or doing over-the-top, glitzy sort of commercial deals. He's just totally focused on being the best he can be at, uh, at football. And maybe that's because he was questioned early on in his career. There's a thread through the, the careers of many of the top sportsmen and women that they were questioned early in their career, whether it was by a coach who didn't think they were good enough, whether they were bullied at school. I think Ben Ainsley had one or two of those issues when he, when he was at uh, school. Um, and Kane, people questioned his weight. Was he this chubby little kid? He admits it himself. And look how he's fought back from that. 90 minutes into a, into a seven-game tournament, Touchwood, um, and England have got the, the points on the board. That's the most important thing. But it's the belief and this key thing of getting the players to express themselves off the pitch, which we've seen filling the pages of the Times and all the newspapers and um, all the media with, uh, with how well they've talked in the build-up. But the key thing is expressing themselves on the pitch as well, which pretty much they're beginning to do. I was going to ask you about Raheem Sterling and the suggestion that his place may be under threat after his performance. Where do you stand on that? Well, I hope every player's position is under threat because that shows that England have strength and depth. And that's, that should be their mindset anyway. You know, the, t- the top players in whatever sport are driven by the possibility of someone replacing them, whether it's an individual sport and they want to make sure they're number one, like Michael Johnson for so many years in, in athletics. What, what, whatever the sport, um, you want absolutely, you want that competition. So um, I'm sure there'll be headlines about Sterling's place uh, under threat. I, like, I'm a huge fan of this. When we were going into tournaments and everyone was sort of saying who's going to be England's most important player, I went with, uh, with, with Sterling. Obviously, Kane's shown that so far. Um, but I wouldn't write uh, Raheem Sterling off. It, there's, there's a tendency to do that with him. I mean, he also has a tendency to bounce back. Shown it at Liverpool, shown it at Manchester City. We now know Deli Ali has suffered a muscle tear. The feeling on the last podcast was that Ruben Loftus' cheek showed that he was ready to step up. What are your thoughts? 
I think Loftus Cheek have no problem stepping in. I think he's got that skill and intricate foot movements of uh, dragging the ball deep into enemy territory and showing the composure. He's got the physical strength to hold off defenders. He's got the imagination, the vision and the technique to set up uh, teammates. But look, this is a team that will evolve during the tournament. And if Southgate, you know, he may change one or two positions and, and keep people fresh for, uh, for Belgium. Finally, Henry, uh, we've seen you tweeting out pictures of a log cabin in Volgograd. It's no life of luxury for you out there. <laughs> no, it was a great log cabin. And, you know, for me, this is part of the, uh, the, the, the joys of the World Cup. I mean, I got into, you know, fell in love with football writing as a kid, reading uh, Geoffrey Green in, in The Times. And what he used to do when he went to events, he would obviously describe the football beautifully. But he would also talk about the journey from the airport. He did one great piece from uh, Rio Airport to Maracanã. And it was just brilliant. And it just it was like a sort of travelogue. So for me, this is an opportunity. I mean, don't tell my bosses this, but this is an opportunity for me to go and actually explore uh, a country. So I'm in a log cabin, which makes Little House on the Prairie look like Trump Tower. I've been to uh, the uh, Battle of Stalingrad Museum. I'm reading Anthony Beaver's book on the Battle of Stalingrad. We're rereading it, so I've read it before. And that's what you want to do, personally, for me, when it comes to events like this, is explore the country, embrace the, uh, you know, the extraordinary culture of this place. You know, we basically, politically, we're in a standoff with Russia at the moment. But actually, you see the Indian fans in, in the streets drinking vodka with the, uh, the locals. So maybe there's... Uh, hope for civilization yet well hopefully you get to follow england fans and the england team right through until mid-july that'd be wonderful we'll be giving you a times trivia teaser question every day on every podcast as provided by the wonderful bill edgar a last time out we asked you which team managed by english-born john adshed faced scotland at the 1982 world cup the answer was new zealand John Walk scoring a brace for Jockstein Scotland in a 5-2 win in Malaga. Our latest teaser, which decade featured two World Cups in which no semi-finals were played? Tune in to our next podcast to find out the answer. Senegal quarter-finalists 16 years ago beat Poland in Moscow. Martin Ziegler joins us now. And, and the win, Martin, was sealed by perhaps a contentious goal. Uh, having received some treatment off the field, and Bai Niang was waved back on in what could be described as an advantageous position. Albeit the chance came from a wayward bat pass from Krajkowiak and Bednarek, not perhaps seeing Niang. It led to some chaos and Niang eventually was able to round Chesney as he came flying out to make it 2-1 to Senegal. Do you have any sympathy, Martin, for, for Poland with that goal? No, I, I think Poland really, really unimpressive. Um, I, mean, I think Senegal got what they deserved. Um, Poland were desperately disappointing. This is, this is a country ranked eighth in the world due to some sort of manipulation of the system. But even so, I mean, they, were, they, were, they should have been much better than they were. Um, I thought they were awful. Senegal, definitely the better team, actually could end up facing England in the last 16 and there certainly won't be a pushover. James, Poland ranked eighth in the world. Do you agree with Martin that they were just unimpressive? I thought they were so disappointing. Um, Adam Nawalka, the the Poland coach, played quite an attacking team. He played two centre-forwards, Lewandowski and, and, and Milik, almost sort of playing as a number 10 two pretty out-and-out wingers in, in Blazikowski and Grzycki. 
and quite a creative central midfielder in Zielinski. And I was, I was going back through Poland's matches. They haven't played together. The, the last time Blazikowski, Zielinski, Lewandowski and Milik all played for Poland was October 2016. And it's, so, it's, it's hardly surprising, you know, where, that the system didn't really work. There was no kind of feeling of cohesion and, and understanding. You know, they're obviously the top seeds in that group, but it, it makes it pretty tough for them to, to qualify now. Steering away from this game, Martin, we've not long ago spoken about that player that came off the pitch, but let's talk about a player who stayed on the pitch for England. Uh, there may have been a reason why Kieran Trippier didn't join in the mass celebration when Harry Kane scored that stoppage time winner. You've written an article on this, which you can read at thetimes.co.uk, but just explain it all to us. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's not just uh, England and Kieran Trippier have done this. It happened when, when Cristiano Ronaldo scored his hat-trick for Portugal last week, everybody rushes off the pitch, jumps on the goal scorer. But in both cases, one single player stayed on the pitch in the opponent's half. And it, it looks, what's happening is that they are, it, it's a deliberate tactic because they're worried that the opposing, the team that's just conceded is going to take a quick kickoff. The laws of the game say all the players have to be in their own half. But I think if they're actually off the pitch, the worry is that while they're doing that, then um, if they're all off the pitch, then the laws of the game can be manipulated so that the team has just let one in, quickly takes a kick-off, gets on the other end, nobody there, and scores. It's a very, very unlikely situation, but it looks very much as though teams are saying to the last person to get to the goal celebration, don't come off the pitch, stay in the opponent's half. And that's happened with Trippier, uh, last night, it happened with Portugal. It also happened with Australia when Jordan Lack scored his penalty. Same thing happened. Everyone goes off the pitch in the corner, apart from one of them who stays there, just to make sure that the game cannot kick off again. Fascinating. Uh, and Martin, you've been across another story involving England's game with Tunisia and VAR. Yes, yeah, so there some obviously controversial decisions involving Harry Kane being wrestled to the ground by Tunisians. Um, lots of ex-referees saying that that should definitely be in a penalty, questioning why wasn't the video referee, the VAR, why wasn't he intervening and reviewing the the, uh, the incidents. Um, so I've spoken to FIFA today. They say they're going to analyse the whole match. They're going to analyse those decisions, feed back into the referees whether they should have taken action or not. I mean, it's a bit late now, but they are, you know, the fact that they're going to review that is probably a good thing. I mean, there are possibly reasons why they, they didn't do it. For example, Harry Kane, um, in the second incident, he appeared he might have had his arm holding the, his opponent's arm. And in the first incident, uh, John Stones looked like he'd pushed somebody before Kane himself was wrestled. So there, there is a sort of get-out clause, a get-out-of-jail card for FIFA, but fascinating to see what they actually come up with. The Game, World Cup Daily from The Times with Natalie Sawyer. We've seen our first red card as Japan beat 10-man Colombia and it was the second fastest sending off in World Cup history. It was Carlos Sanchez sent off at 2 minutes and 56 seconds into the game. There's no actual debate on the handball denying a goal-scoring opportunity and that red card. But, James, as Gab Marcotti pointed out on Twitter, regardless of adrenaline and instinct, a 32-year-old Sanchez should know what to do, especially in the age of VAR. It was absolute madness. I think, 
you can understand the deliberate handball in the situation that, for example, Luis Suarez did in the 2010 World Cup when it was literally the last minutes of extra time and Uruguay would have been eliminated. Two minutes into the game, into your first game of the World Cup, Colombia, probably a stronger team than Japan, would probably expect themselves to win that match. Going down an early goal, of course, you know, I mean, you don't, it's not what you want, but it, to me, that is nowhere near as big a setback as going down to 10, well, I'm clearly it's not as big a setback as going down to 10 men and conceding a penalty. For, for me, I think the penalty is, you know, I, can't, I don't know the exact that, but I think, you know, 75 or 80% chance of being converted anyway. So for me, that that trade-off just does not make sense. Just con- just concede the goal and, mm. and, you know, go again. You've got 87 minutes. To, yeah. it, just, it just baffled me. I thought that was just terrible, terrible game management. Yeah. What about the result as a whole? How big a shock was it that Japan beat Colombia? My personal view is that I had a feeling that Colombia might be one of the sides that slightly disappoint us at this tournament. Obviously, I think partly because we remember them being so brilliant in in 2014. If you actually look at South American qualifying against the the big beasts of South American qualifying, Brazil, Argentina, Chile and Uruguay, they were winless in eight matches. I don't think they're that good. It's really interesting because we've seen probably two upsets in Group H today that have turned that group upside down. One of Colombia or Poland is almost certain to be eliminated. And of course, that has real consequences for England, potentially, should they emerge from from Group G. They might not be facing one of the nations that they necessarily expected. Although from the start, we probably thought Group H was quite even anyway. But it is it, it is a surprise, I would say. Mm. That's match day six then. Are we set for a goal fest on Wednesday? Uh, from what Uruguay saw Russia do against Saudi Arabia, hammering them 5-0, they'll, they're going to be relishing the opportunity, aren't they, to, to play them, especially with Luis Suarez and Edison Cavani, no doubt eager to get scoring. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think um, Saudi Arabia were, were poor against Russia. They were extremely open. Um, I don't think they will be that open against Uruguay um, who I thought were relatively disappointing in the first match I thought Cavani played really well Suarez didn't look sharp at all but um, it's always easy to anticipate a goal fest but actually I guess we've seen quite often in the first week of the World Cup that sometimes it's not that easy for an accomplished side to break down an inferior team if that team is well organised and sits in a deep block the problem is that Saudi Arabia did not look organised in their opening match. They looked very, very open. So, yeah, you would you would probably predict a, a comfortable Uruguay victory in, in that match. In Group B, Portugal will be taking on a bottom of the table, Morocco. But I suppose the more intriguing encounter sees the leaders, Iran, taking on Spain. Uh, Iran know that a victory could put them within touching distance of that round of 16, but Spain eager for a first victory. Yeah, I thought Iran were... were Impressive against Morocco. They're really well organised. Um, obviously, Carlos Queiroz has been in charge for a long time and he's organised them very well defensively. Um, they had a good defensive record in qualifying. I actually thought their, their attackers, who expected quite a lot of, the likes of Ali Reza Yahambach, were didn't get into the game that much. Spain, I, I still expect Spain to win this match, even though I suppose the result against Portugal was a setback. But I actually think in terms of performance, I still think they're the most impressive side that we saw in the first round of fixtures. I thought they looked extremely well balanced. They're a bit more multidimensional, I think, than they were in at the past couple of major tournaments. Diego Costa 
who of course was unfit at the 2014 World Cup, looked fit, looked sharp, and he just added something. He added that real kind of aggression and, and edge up front, um, which I think is going to be tricky. I think one of the Iranian centre-backs who started against Morocco is injured and has had to withdraw from the tournament. So the, presumably they'll be playing a second-choice centre-back up against Diego Costa, which will be a bit of a, a, bit of a baptism of fire for, <laughs> for whoever Kiro selects. That is it for now. Many thanks to my guests, James Gearbrandt, Alison Rudd, Martin Ziegler and Henry Winter. Subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. For a limited time, it's just a pound a month for your first three months. Search The Times sale for more information. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast supplier. We'll be back on Wednesday after what could be a magnificent seventh match day of the World Cup. And I'll be joined by Gab Marcotti and Giles Smith. See you then. The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.